Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. This episode of Nice Chats will be a little different from our previous one. Usually, we have a guest on the show who is an expert on whatever area we decide to talk about on that particular episode. Today, however, I will interview Monash's PhD student, Angus Rogers. Angus is a fine young isotopic geochemist who is learning the ropes of isotope dilution and the dark ways of the force. But today, despite the little speech that I do at the start of every episode, Angus will not be talking about his area of expertise. Unless you call creating havoc his area of expertise. But let's not get into that discussion. Today he will walk us through a few examples of contested theories in geosciences and the reasons for their creation and downfall. Here is Angus. Hey Angus, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> hey Vito, thanks for that very flattering introduction. <laughs> I am I'm very curious to see what you brought to the table today mm-hmm. and um, I love myself some con- controversy almost as much as I enjoy some hot gossip okay so I'm looking forward to it oh there's some hot gossip coming your way don't worry <laughs> good every every episode we start by playing a game just to loosen up a little bit mm-hmm. and the game that I've prepared for you today uh, is called the dating game. In this game, you will choose between three suitable bachelors and decide based on your affinity to each of them which of these geochronometers you should consider in the future. Mm, okay, okay, so mm-hmm. basically three bachelors. I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions and based on their answer, we're going to pick your perfect match. Okay, I like it. All right. Okay, so the first question we asked our contestant was... What is your favorite color? Bachelor number one's color of choice is white. It really brings out its best attributes. Bachelor number two really loves blue. It thinks that it is the color it wears best. And bachelor number three doesn't like labels. To it, colors are a spectrum, much like the Michel Levy color chart. So, Angus, what do you think? has the best answer and why oh gee well bachelor number three's answer sounds so up its own ass that there's not a chance i'd be choosing <laughs> bachelor three if they if <laughs> if you went to a party and you were getting to know someone and just i don't know ran out of questions you didn't want to talk about the weather and you're like oh what's your favorite color and they gave you that but the, if someone said i just turn around and walk away i'd be like i'm fine someone else <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if it's between blue and white like my favorite color is green but blue is probably closer to green than white so let's go with let's go with the boring blue answer okay so bachelor number two 
All right. Next thing we asked our bachelors is, what is your perfect kind of date? <laughs> so, Angus, you need to choose one of the following options. Mm -hmm. Bachelor number one will leave the decisions up to you. You can take it to your favorite place. You pick whatever you want. Bachelor number two is a Netflix and chill kind of bachelor. Its perfect date is just to stay home. You can get to know each other better if you don't need to move anywhere for the date. Bachelor number three thinks that the best thing in this case would be to get more people involved. The more the better. When there's a bunch of different characters, it's when it thinks that it is at its best. Maybe a party then, or a double date. <laughs> All right, yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to put it on Bachelor number three again. Man, um, you're really not vibing Bachelor number I'm three. Bachelor yeah. number three. Like, uh, you would maybe meet someone on your first date at a, you know, not even the first date, right? You meet them at a party, I get that. But I'm not gonna take someone on a first date to a party. Uh, maybe like wherever this bachelor's from, that's normal, but not a chance. Okay, boomer. So I'm gonna pick number one was the um, go out somewhere I choose. Number two was Netflix and chill. I'm gonna go with number one first date. Number one. Boom. Nice. Okay. Next, we asked our bachelors to pick a verse from a song that represents them. This is what bachelor number one picked. I'm gonna watch you radiate, radiate, radiate. Right, that's a Jack Johnson song. Okay. Bachelor number two picked. Shine bright like a diamond. <laughs> that's the only part of the song I know. Yeah. And finally, Bachelor number three's verse is. Now from the top, make it drop. That's somewhere <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sorry I got carried away, Angus. Um, oh, man, love me some Cardi B. Alright. Which one do you prefer? Um, as much as I love Cardi B, I think I would probably say my, my musical preference is none of these. I, I'll choose the, the secret door off to the right side of the stage. Um, <laughs> you know, where they have like the, the hidden bachelor in reserve. Um, but if that's not an option, I'll pick number one. Number one. So you also have to remember that, you know, these are lyrics that represent them. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, I mean, obviously they will choose mm -hmm. something they like, but, you know, also represent. Yeah, so what were the lyrics for number one again? Yeah, so number one was, I'm going to watch you radiate, radiate. Number two was, shine bright like a diamond. And number three, now from the top, make it drop. Well, you know what, now, now rethinking that with the context of your, your little point there, gee, number one and two are like opposites, aren't they? One is, one is like someone is, is like supporting me and they're like, yeah, you do your thing. And then number two is kind of like that person's a bit more self-sufficient or uh, a bit more independent maybe. And then number three is the same thing. So actually, I'm going to swap around and say number two. Number two. All right. Next question was... How do you characterize yourself as a date? Bachelor number one likes to be pampered. He has expensive taste. It's very royal, you know, noble. <coughs> Bachelor number two thinks of itself as nothing more than adaptable. It enjoys staying in place, but 
can do just as well with changes. It enjoys traveling and can handle pressure quite well. Bachelor number three wants your undivided attention. If you are with it, then that's what you should focus on. It also likes to exercise and keep tabs on its weight and all of that stuff. Ooh, I reckon I'm going to go with number two. I think that uh, I, in, I like independence. I think that most scientists kind of fit that bill, that mold, um, that we are pretty independent people and we probably like in general other people who can be independent alongside us and like adaptable and you know, if um if I have plans but then I have to change them because, you know, something's gone wrong in the lab. <laughs> it's happened a lot this year and I needed to like stay behind just to try and fix finish it up or, you know, clean up a spill or whatever. Uh, I don't I would hate to be dating someone that is gonna get into a tizzy because they can't um they can't deal with that change of plans, for example. That's a very good point. Alright, so final question. Our final question was about the timeline. How do our bachelors prefer to take the relationship? Bachelor number one likes when things move a bit slower. It requires time to get to know you and gain your trust. Bachelor number two, it's all about quick dates. If it's there, it's there. Otherwise, just move on. It is not interested in anything common. If you catch my drift, it is looking for that special date. And then bachelor number three agrees with bachelor number one, usually prefers to take its time. Also, bachelor number three also asked me to tell you that it would be willing to date multiple phases. It thinks that you can really only get to know yourself if you see what's out there and date different phases. So which one rings your bell? I think number, I think number two rings my bell. Number two, okay. Let's see the results. <laughs> Obviously, number two is the dating method for you, right? I, I think so. So, bachelor number two, come on out. <laughs> so, number two is... <laughs> Oof, what a surprise. Mm -hmm. In situ uranium lead zircon. Oh dating. no! <laughs> I'm the zircon guy. So it is zircon dating. Let's see if you can catch the um, tips. All right. First, first question was favorite color was blue, mm -hmm. and that's the like you know the famous um, whenever zircon is jam quality, you know, uh, usually the blue is kind of like the the most uh, liked one. Yeah, well, I guess blue is one of one of my favorite colors, probably my favorite color in minerals. Mm. It's just like, it's not that common. Sure, no. Yeah, it is nice. Um, and then the second question was the perfect kind of date. And then bachelor number two just likes to stay home, uh, which is kind of like, you know, a joke with in situ. Mm -hmm. Then the next question was the song. And then shine bright like a diamond because zircon can be gem quality. Uh, question number four was, uh, it's adaptable. It enjoys staying in place but can do just as well with changes. Enjoys traveling and can handle pressure well because zircon, you know, can survive transport and up to a certain point, you know, m like high pressure and temperatures. 
And then the last one was the relationship thing, which was it's about quick dates <laughs> because you know between the between the three bachelors, it's actually the one that is the fastest, yeah. and that's why people do it so much. <laughs> and then the the other joke that was in there was that it is not interested in anything common because we all mm -hmm. know how common, common. lad. Is a big problem in in situ zircon dating. That's clever. All right. So, <laughs> can you guess who are the other two bachelors? Um, we can we can uh, okay. I can take you through their answers, and you can try to uh, to guess. Okay, sure, sure. Okay, so bachelor number one has said its favorite color is white, right? Um, with the date, it said that it will leave the decisions up to you. And you can take it to your favorite place. You pick whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Bachelor number one also said that their favorite song was I'm Gonna Watch You Radiate. Radiate. Mm -hmm. um, it likes to be pampered. Has expensive taste. Is very noble. Uh. And then final question is that it likes to move slower. Takes time to get to know. Okay, you. can I have a guess? Think I'm ready. Yeah, go for it. I would like to lock in Argon Dayton. Boom! Bachelor number one is Argon Argon Dating in Pleasure Clays. All right, now Bachelor number three. Bachelor number three said that it doesn't like labels. It's uh, it doesn't really have a favorite color. It can have many colors. Um, it also said that it would prefer to have a first date as more of like a party, you know, let, let, let's get other phases involved. Hmm. Um, its favorite song was WAP, Now From The Top, Make It Drop, etc, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, bachelor number three also wants your undivided attention, and this is something you should know a little thing about. Finally. It says that it prefers to take its time as well, so it's something that you know is a lengthy process. And also gave you an extra tip that it would be willing to date multiple phases. You you can really only get to know this geochronometer if you date multiple phases. So what is your guess? Mm. Okay, I'm not certain. I think this one's to me at least. That's what is obvious. As the other, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with lutetium hafnium dating. Man, spot on! It is lutetium hafnium isotope dilution ah. dating. <laughs> That's bachelor ah. number three. You get it now, right? From the top, make it drop oh, with the you. with the little pipettes, man. I mean, that's your day to day. Ah, uh, yes, it is my. I, you know what? Because I don't. <laughs> I'm not doing any dating on the rocks. I didn't consider like that part of it, but yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm separating out hafnium. I was separating out hafnium like two weeks ago. So <laughs> I actually like that you didn't pick option number three, bachelor number three, because you shouldn't mix business and pleasure. That's what mullets are for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am wasted. I am wasted. In research, I should be doing stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what would your stand-up name be? Because you wouldn't just be like V for Rote. Is it 
I say pronounce the last name right, Barote? Yeah, sure, sure. Let's let's say oh, it is. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, I need to know because we could create a rhyme or a uh, an alter ego for you. Oh so my! But yeah, so my podcast name is Doctor B, right? Exactly because nobody could pronounce my name. So, look, I'm not gonna sit here and listen to these allegations that I rigged the game to favor my preferred candidate. Okay, it is not my fault that Angus fell for the seductive qualities of in-situ circonjeochronology. Now, what is your favorite bachelor? Let me know on Twitter or Instagram, at geodoctorb, that is G-E-O-D-R-B. Now, a bit more of Angus for you. So, let's get right into these theories then, because my curiosity is killing me. I think that in order to understand as much as we can about these theories today, we should use something that I learned in school maybe 20 years ago. The 5W technique. Do you know, Angus, what the 5W technique is? Hmm. Could I ask what it is, where it's from, when it was created, why it was created, and who, how? <laughs> that is spot on. The 5Ws are questions whose answers are considered basic in information gathering. They include what, when, who, why, and where. And we're just going to play a little bit with these uh, five words to get to be able to understand our theories today. So the first theory that we will explore today is the hollow earth. So Angus, what, that's the first uh, of the Ws, is the theory exactly. But what, Vitor, is that the hollow earth is a crazy theory put forward by a very brilliant astronomer. And he decided essentially that it could be possible to explain magnetic field variations by using uh, an explanation involving shells of the Earth, like a, um, uh, an, an armillary sphere. I looked this up just before because I was like, what are those things called? You know, uh, they're like rings that kind of rotate around themselves, like a globe but made of rings. So if you've ever seen one of those crazy spinning things, yeah, those things are called armillary spheres. And so when I heard about this theory, um, I was I was immediately thinking of this thing, this armillary sphere, because that's essentially what um, what the uh, the who decided uh, it could be causing these magnetic field variations. Okay, cool. So when was this theory going about? So I'll give you the. Uh, a slightly roundabout explanation of this. It began in around 1691. Okay. But the theory is still popular today, and it had a, a pretty big resurgence in the late uh, 18th century and the to like the mid 19th century. So until about 18 uh, 1840 or so. Um, so <laughs> that's got a it's got a bit of a story to it. Right. We'll it's like fashion, right? Things always mm -hmm. come back to season. <laughs> okay, and uh, who came up with this idea? So I think that the the first person it could probably be ascribed to would be Edmund Haley. So that was the and he's the person behind this uh, theory at first. Yes, yeah, so he kind it. of started it. Okay. Um, he suggested it, and uh, it's a bit crazy with scientific, uh, you know, history and I guess any aspect of history is there's always a bit of 
um, mistruth to how it's told, you know. Mm-hmm. Some things can be exaggerated or misquoted and then passed on as fact and so on. But I believe that, um, yeah, Edmund Haley created the first kind of suggestion that was widely kind of spread. Uh, at the same time, there was, or even a couple of years later, there was um, a German uh, mathematician or astronomer who sort of said some similar things and there was images of this um, earth which had holes at the poles which led to this hollow center you know the center of the earth um, but if you're looking for like a, a concrete like person who put it all together it was really more like bits and pieces um which kept getting tacked onto this um onto this theory uh with this one particular uh character from the uh late 18th sorry the late 18th century um john cleve sims jr in america taking this theory under his wing and running with it and just going crazy. So the next question is, why was this theory formulated? AKA, how come this guy made this theory up and what are the arguments for its validity? Like, what we need to keep in mind here is that these aren't just, you know, ridiculous theories that, uh, although we might see them in this light now, they actually, at the time, they actually made sense and they must have something that supports the idea, you know, that drove these scientists to, to create these uh, theories. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, like the original theory created by, by Har- Harley uh, was then, you know, taken out of proportion. But what is the basis of the reasons that led him to, to this theory? Yeah, of course, uh, I think... It's definitely easy with hindsight to look back at any of these theories or pretty much most historical events, I guess, and say, oh, all the people who thought they were crazy and the people who did those things were crazy um, or, you know, just not very smart. But you take, like, probably one of the most famous astronomers in the world at the time, um, it'd be like looking at, I was going to say Elon Musk, but he's done some crazy stuff, um, someone who's, like, well-respected, uh, in the world today, maybe someone like um, uh, uh, David Attenborough. Let's say let's say that da- let's say David Attenborough, and David Attenborough suggests something, um, and it's based on a uh, a premise which needs to be explained. So in this case, the, mag- the variations in the magnetic field. So it's changing strength or position over time. You see this observation. There needs to be a physical explanation for it you know, for, for those things to continue to change. And, a, you know, a mathematician, an astronomer decides, okay, well, if there was a changing dynamo in the Earth um, by these kind of moving rings like this armillary sphere, then that could produce an altering magnetic field over time, you know, if these different kind of rings moved at different speeds and different directions. So there was a pretty good sort of scientific reason for it to happen. Yeah, I think that, you know, in the light of what we know now, it's easy to see how this theory doesn't make that much sense because we have a lot of a lot more knowledge on the structure of the earth now, uh, especially, you know, with the advances in uh, seismic, for example, seismic studies and things like that. And uh, we actually um have an episode that we interviewed Dr. Francesca Miozzi and she talked to us a little bit about uh, specifically the core, but you know the whole Earth structure as a whole, 
And if you go back and listen to her episode of Nice Chats, you can see how, you know, this theory wouldn't really hold up today. Like, if there was a time where it would have made sense based on the evidence that was out there, that's no longer the case. And uh, I think that it is pretty obvious now that the Earth is not hollow because how can something flat be hollow? Doesn't make any sense. Exactly. I mean, it, do they think it's some sort of, I don't know, it's pancake stack with... No. It doesn't make sense. The Earth is flat. Everybody knows that. So let's just move on. Four elephants riding Great Atuin, the, the tortoise, the turtle, swimming through the... Uh, Swing through the void, so. So that's what you're learning on your PhD. That's correct. Yeah. The, you know, the, the 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 PhD students like yourself are the future, so we're in good hands. I I only want to protect the disc world. So let's move on to our next theory. Okay. <laughs> and this one is called the Neptunist theory. Yeah. So let's start with our first W. What is the theory exactly? Okay, the Neptunus theory is essentially that there was a, a massive flood at one point. The entire Earth must have been covered in water to explain the existence of sedimentary rocks everywhere. So if you walk outside, you'll probably see sand on the ground somewhere. Mm -hmm. One of the ideas for how sedimentary rocks form is that essentially enough sand kind of gets compressed together by the weight of all the stuff above it that it turns into a sandstone. So to make sandstone in the middle of a continent where there's no ocean, there must have once been an ocean there. Yeah, makes sense. So when was this theory going on about? Uh, this, I think this theory was gaining most of its popularity in the, uh, the late 1700s. Okay. And uh, who came up with this idea? Abraham Werner, a German geologist. We've been talking about Germans, you know, a good part of the day now, and I think it's it's clear that Germans are crazy. So this this crazy German decided that um he believed that all all rocks were uh, sedimentary uh, in origin, or at least that there was this great flood that had provided their their sort of layout. I'd just like to make an intermission here because <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners are German. My <laughs> wife lives in Germany. I am moving soon to Deutschland. So, you know, nothing but love to you guys. This is, <laughs> this is only a joke, okay? Um, so, why was this theory formulated? And what I mean by that is how come this person made this theory up and what are the arguments for its validity? Sure. So, I guess, uh, kind of like what we just said before, if there are sedimentary rocks in the middle of somewhere that doesn't have any, um, doesn't have any way for there to be an ocean there now, than there must have been some time previously. And of course, this is way before plate tectonics or any, any theory for the movement of large-scale pieces of crust had been created. Um, yeah, I guess that's a story for another day, though. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, the kind of, like, basic concept of this theory um, has some truth to it. Like, let's say, you know, if there is a rock from a, you know, from oceanic um, source mm. uh, present, you know, in some place in the continent now, you know, the rock itself was under an ocean at some point. So, you know, the fact that there was an ocean involved in the formation of this rock is true, 
What wasn't taken into account is that the rock itself could move because we know now with, you know, uh, tectonics and with deformation and we know that rocks move as well. So if you see um, sedimentary rocks from an oceanic setting on top of the Alps nowadays, that doesn't mean that the ocean was getting that high. It just means that mm -hmm. those rocks was deposit, were deposited at the ocean level. And then, you know, with the building of the mountain belt, they were uplifted to the uh, position that they, found them, they find themselves now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where did it go from there? How was the theory disproved? So this, this Neptunus theory, the sedimentologist wet dream, uh, sort of split, if you like. There was a, um, in the 1750s, an Italian geologist who hadn't left Italy, and because Italy's got a lot of volcanoes on it, thought all rocks were from volcanic eruptions. This became known as the volcanism or the plutonism theory. So there was these two sort of um, theories butting heads, if you like, the, the, the sedimentologist's wet dream and the, um, <laughs> the volcanologist's wet dream, or very hot wet dream. Uh, and in the uh, late um, 18th century, this eventually came to a head and, um, and was disproven, uh, or rather, you know, that, that neither of them were the full truth, that there was some combination of the two. Rocks were laid down. It's that they were, had to be eroded, and the erosion of some rocks created sedimentary rocks eventually, but that more being created through volcanism at the same time. So obviously we still don't have the um, plate tectonics uh, moving in to fill that other gap there, but we do have a rock cycle form from the collapse of these two sort of ideas. I think that the, the first two theories that we discussed, obviously they, they sound pretty crazy with the knowledge that we have now but you know if you don't really have more evidence that disproves these theories maybe at the time that they were developed they had some kind of sense of of validity behind them and i think that nowadays we have um a much higher degree of communication so these the, the theories that we are uh, formulating now they go through a more um global process of evaluation so it's it's harder to uh, to put out a theory that is too uh, that is too out there for, for example you know this uh, the, the first theory that we talked about of the hollow earth um that that's very kind of um single single domain let's say once you start uh introducing other elements like geophysics for example you 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 start to to get a, a more complete picture which is something that is uh, that is very common nowadays and that benefits science you know how how you can get uh information from different sources to get a more complete picture of a of a question of of a theory and and uh, and so on there is also a much much more developed scientific rigor now So, for the next segment in the show, we like to always ask the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions which are a little bit more personal, and they're designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener, and allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research field. So, my first question to you is, how did you first decide to become a geologist? 
I think the moment when I decided or that I kind of knew that I at least wanted to give geology a red hot shot as like a career was in the winter of third year of uni. So it was 2017 and I did a two week internship at an environmental consultancy and it sucked. It was really like soulless and just reports and not actually seeing any of the science. And I'm sure that there are people in consultants uh, in consultancy that are very entertained and that, you know, it's probably great places to work. And maybe I just found one of the ones that was a bit more boring, but I did not enjoy it at all. And then immediately after that, there was a 16 day excursion I did as a winter unit to um, Broken Hill in Outback New South Wales. So this is a, an area of really highly deformed um, stratigraphy from about the Ordovician. And it made for an excellent field camp. We were doing mapping and then interpreting what we had mapped over the course of yeah, about 15 days in the field. And doing that, I think, was a bit of a turning point where I went, I don't just want to study geology. You know, up until that point, I'd already done a minor and I was most of the way to a major. But I was like, okay, I think I could do this for a job. What are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? So my research uh, currently with our uh, German overlord, Oliver, it focuses on the isotopic geochemistry of a chain of, um, of underwater seamounts off the coast of Eastern Australia. So uh, Vitor, you probably know that there's some wonderful islands off the coast of Australia. Do you know about Lord Howe Island? No, I'm sorry, I don't. Well, you're probably not going to get a chance to go there before you go to Germany, but when all of our lockdowns are over and we're able to actually journey outside a bit more, Lord Howe Island is one of those idyllic, like tropical resort sort of destinations. It's, you do know that I'm from Brazil though, right? Yeah, but uh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> not studying Brazil. <laughs> yeah, so I've... Um, so this Lord Howe Island is a, um, a seamount that has broken the surface. So it's just a, um, a volcanic guyot, I think is the name, or essentially a volcanic island. And it's at the edge of this big kind of plateau, which is called the Lord Howe Rise. So its origins are a little bit uncertain, but it appears to follow this kind of chain of seamounts um, uh, sort of north-south, which of course is the same sort of direction that Australia is moving towards China and India. So with that in mind, you might, as the talented uh, geologist that's listening to this, consider that perhaps Australia was moving across a um, mantle plume and this mantle plume has created a chain of islands or underwater seamounts um, on the Australian uh, coast and that's kind of the current the current thinking but there's a problem a little spanner in the works here and that's that there's these three volcanic arcs or what appear to be um, volcanic arcs pretty close to each other too close to be three separate plumes by you know most kind of measures of how big we think a plume is so if you imagine there's the coast of Eastern Australia with what's called the Cosgrove Tract, that's on land. Then just off the coast, about 50 kilometres out, is the Tasmantids. And then a bit further out from there, but still closer than New Zealand, is the uh, Lord Howe Rise or the Lord Howe uh, Seamount Track. So there's these three parallel tracks. Being parallel, it kind of makes sense that there's this one thing maybe producing the three of them, but we don't really see that anywhere else in the world. So by using isotopic geochemistry are looking at a few different sort of 
geochemical systems, I'm hoping to relate these or see if they are related and then create a um, formulate a hypothesis for uh, the simultaneous kind of creation of the three of them, given that it's so unique. Do you smell that? I smell nature paper. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> flattering. I better start writing my speech. So the final question is, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geology? My, my biggest time-consuming hobby is being the dungeon master. For oh, really, of, man? That's so cool. Group of, group of friends that play uh, Dungeons & Dragons with me. Oh, that's awesome. How good a master are you? Uh, so we've been playing for like uh, nearly two and a half years um, in the same squad, same little group. So it's myself and five players. Um, one of them's now in Sweden, and she joins us um, over Zoom. But it's it's pretty sweet. Uh, it's if you've never played Dungeons and Dragons before, and you, you might even have some some second thoughts about it, you're like, Ew. Or, or maybe um, you know you just heard things. It's kind of like a narrated story. So imagine someone is reading a book to you, except you get to influence what happens in the book. So for every decision that could possibly come up, you get to say, "I want to do this," or "I want to do this." The, the, uh, the dungeon master then kind of explains how it could occur or how it might happen for you, but then you still get to attempt things by rolling a dice, which adds in this element of chance. So for example, if I'm sneaking up on Vitor in the corridor at Monash University, I might try to um, pick his pocket. The dungeon master would say to me, all right, I'm gonna need you to make a sleight of hand check. I roll a 12, not very good, I'm pretty clumsy. Then Vitor makes a perception check against my sleight of hand. He rolls a nat 20, which is the highest number you can roll in the Crit. dice. Crit. He immediately grabs my wrist and spins around, preparing his BJJ attack. Uh, and then we roll for initiative and fight. So that's kind of a little taste of what it's like. Um, but it gets, uh, it gets pretty elaborate, and there's probably a lot of D&D podcasts out there which go for hours. The best in thrash. All right, Angus, I think that as far as Nice Chats episode goes, this one was definitely one of the funniest ones. Um, it was uh, full of just jokes and uh, therefore one of my favorite ones. But I also think we learned a thing or two along the way. You know what? When you don't have the full picture, it's easy to, uh, you know, to misunderstand something. Um, Given the results of our game, I expect you to change your research fields at any day now. So come talk to me at the laser lab and we'll get you hooked up. Oh, Zircons, here we go. Thank you for uh, presenting to us these, uh, these nice theories today. Thanks for participating of the podcast. Cheers, Victor. Appreciate being on here. Have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. Hey listeners, I would like to apologize for the bad quality of Angus's audio. Uh, we had a few technical difficulties with his recording. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening to another episode of Noise Chats. You can follow Angus's adventures on Twitter at Heavy Metal Angus. And 
Listen, let me leave you with a little piece of advice. No matter how tough it gets, just keep erupting laughter. <laughs>